you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, turn to Genesis chapter 12. We're back in this glorious book. Uh, Lord willing, we'll finish chapter 12 this morning. We began our verse-by-verse exposition back into the book of Genesis last week, <clears throat> excuse me, by looking at the first nine verses. And this morning, we're going to look at verses 10 through 20, where the faith of this man, Abraham, that was so on display in the first nine verses, falters. And we'll see ourselves in Abraham. I don't think we can see ourselves in the Abraham of verses one through nine. That kind of faith to leave all that you know and go to a land that he's going to show you. Often we don't see ourselves in that, but we're going to see ourselves as Abraham's faith falters now and see how God works with him. So follow along in your copy of the scriptures as I read verses 10 through 20 of Genesis chapter 12. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt with He dealt well with Abram, and he had sheep and oxen, male donkeys, male servants, male female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Let's pray. Father, it's been such a privilege to gather with your people this morning and worship you. We pray that you have received it. as it is meant, um, as an expression of our gratefulness for who you are and what you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us now, Lord, as we remain in the spirit of worship and turn to your word and seek to be instructed by it, seek to learn from it, seek to see the thread of your heart of redemption woven throughout the pages of scripture, even in this first book. But not just so that we would see that and be smart about that, but Lord, so that you might use this passage to change us to look more like Christ, to build our faith in you, to long for that day with hope and assurance and confidence as we wait for you to return and bring us home. We pray this in faith in Jesus' name, amen. So we left last week with Abraham entering into Canaan, and right from the beginning, 
Like one of the first things that happens after he enters into this land that God promised to him. He, he, he endures hardship. It says in verse 10 there, now there was a famine in the land. So, so right at the beginning of his journey of faith, there's hardship and there's, there's suffering. And that immediately brings two questions to mind. First, why? Why is there a famine? And secondly, what's, what's Abraham going to do as a result of this famine in the land? But first, why is it here? What's causing this? And, and probably more importantly, why now? I mean, he's just arrived into Canaan. Why is there a famine? Well, we know why there's a famine. It's because God has sent it. God is sovereign, which means he's in control, which, which means that nothing escapes his attention and nothing happens outside of his divine will. And so God has brought a famine to this land that he promised to give to Abraham and his descendants. And so what is God doing here? Is he trying to teach Abraham something? Is he testing his faith? We know from Romans 8, 28, everything God does, he does for our good and his glory. We know that God causes all things to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so in in this famine, how is this for his good? And how is this for God's glory? But secondly, what's Abraham going to do to respond to this? How's he going to respond to this famine, this hardship and suffering that immediately comes on him as, pretty much as soon as he gets into Canaan? He's been told to leave his country, leave his home, leave his father's house, leave all that he knows and loves, and go to a land that God was going to show him. And, and he obeyed. He did that. He left Ur. He left his home. He left everything that he knew and loved. He packed up his wife and his nephew and his father, and they set out for Canaan. They got as far as Haran. He was halfway obedient. And then they settled there, and Terah, his father, stayed there, and Abraham went on and continued to be obedient and follow the Lord until they got to Canaan. And after he arrived in Canaan, God said, this is it. This is the land that I said I was going to show you, that I'm going to give to you. This is the land I will give to you and to your descendants, this land. But God also promised to make Abraham into a great nation, that he would have many descendants, and that from him and through his progeny, he would be a blessing to all nations, all peoples of the earth, which we saw last week was really a restating of the covenant of grace, which began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Right after the fall of man, God cursed Adam and Eve as a result of their sin in the garden, but he also cursed the serpent. And he said, there's coming one, there will come one from the seed of the woman who will one day crush the head of the serpent. Referring to one who would come from the woman who would crush the head of the serpent, defeating sin and death for all those who would trust in that seed. And this now is being restated in the form of a specific covenant with Abraham, where he was telling him that the, the, the seed of promise is going to come through you, Abraham. It's going to come through your family. It's going to come through your line that he would be the beginning of a huge family, a great nation. And what God had in mind here was not just the nation of Israel, but the church, believers from every tribe, every tongue, every nation who are children of Abraham by faith in Jesus Christ, who is the seed of the woman, who 
did crush the head of the serpent by dying on the cross for the sins of man. So God made this promise to Abraham in the first nine verses, as we saw last week, and it was a two-pronged promise. It was a promise of people, and it was a promise of land. He promised to make him into a great nation, and he promised to give him and his descendants this land that he was in. So the promise is made, and in response to that promise, we, we saw what Abraham did. He immediately built altars and worshiped this God, which is appropriate when a holy God gives irrevocable promises of grace and blessing to an undeserved person. That undeserved person returns thanks and gratitude to that holy God. So that's what Abraham did. But now, immediately following last week's episode of of the calling and, and promise of God and the the, the worship and the trusting of Abraham, right after that episode comes real life. Real life with real problems, real hardships, real concerns. Verse 10, now there was a famine in the land. So what's Abraham going to do in response to this hardship, in response to this suffering? Verse 10 continues, so Abraham went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Stop right there for a moment. Three things we learn from that right there. First of all, the the famine was severe. So we're not talking about a few meals that Abraham missed. This was a severe famine. There was no food in Canaan. Secondly, we learn that they, they go down to Egypt. They go south. They leave Canaan. They go south. And they head in, they're heading down to Egypt because the famine was severe. And thirdly, we learn that they, they went down there to sojourn there. And that word sojourn means to abide or to dwell. So they weren't going on vacation. They weren't going there just to kind of pass through and spend a few days. They were going down there to live, to settle down and abide and dwell in Egypt. Now, why did Abraham go down to Egypt as a result of this famine in Canaan? What, what, was, what was it about Egypt that made that a viable option for Abraham. Well, humanly speaking, it just made sense. From a human perspective, it was logical. It it just made sense. The land of Egypt was known to be very fertile because of the Nile River. Most of Egypt, as you know, of course, is desert, but not near the Nile, not along the Nile, and certainly not in the Nile Delta, which would have been where the Nile empties out into the Mediterranean, and that would have been the route that folks coming down from Canaan would have taken to enter into Egypt. So that's where Abraham was headed, to the Nile Delta. And the delta of the Nile River is one of the largest river deltas in the world, and the, and the soil there is very rich, even to this day, and ideal for growing crops and harvesting food. And so Abraham knew that if there was a famine up in Canaan, there was a good chance that he would find a sustainable food source in Egypt. So from a human perspective, it was logical. It just made sense. But we should note that although there are a few times in Scripture where God specifically commands his people to go down to Egypt, most notably when he tells Jacob to go down to Egypt, because Jacob's son Joseph is spearheading a food storage program down there to save the nation of Israel. So we find that from time to time. But biblically, most often, that's the, that's the exception, but more typically, 
going down to Egypt, biblically, is symbolic of rebelling against Yahweh, going away from God. In the Old Testament, Egypt is seen as almost a a kind of southern Babylon, a place where sin is rampant and where God's people are likely to give in to that sin and be drawn away from a singular devotion to Yahweh. But it was also a place, Egypt was also a place of incredible human achievement and accomplishment and, and human advancement. And after all, if you've got such human achievement and human accomplishment, why do you need God? So that was their thinking. And Isaiah prophesies later against those who go down to Egypt. In Isaiah 31, verse 1, he says, Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult the Lord. So Abraham leaving Canaan at the first sign of trouble and heading down to Egypt was really Abraham taking matters into his own hands and not trusting this this Yahweh and instead trusting himself and trusting man. So while from a human perspective, It was logical. From God's perspective, it was sinful. It was disobedient. And that's certainly the way the Israelites who are listening to Moses tell this story or or reading the the historical account of, of, of Moses writing this story about Abraham, as they're sitting in the Sinai wilderness centuries later, that's certainly how they would have read this story. That's certainly the conclusion that they would have drawn to Abraham going down to Egypt, that he was turning away from trusting God to trusting man, trusting in his own plan instead of trusting in God's plan. What was God's plan? What have we learned about God's plan for Abraham? Leave what you know, go to a land that I will show you. And what does God do? He leads them into Canaan. When they get to Canaan, he says, this is it. This is the land that I have for you and for your descendants for centuries to come, generations to come. So where does God tell him to go down to Egypt? He doesn't. He never directs Abraham to go down to Egypt. And in fact, the way the narrative reads here in this story, we can can conclude that to Moses, this, this was Abraham disobeying God running away from God, and choosing to take matters into his own hands. Now, some might say, well, God didn't have to tell Abraham to leave Canaan. God didn't tell Abraham to leave, leave Egypt. He sent a famine. Of course he was going to go down to Egypt. And to that, I would, I would respond, it's not so much about where he went as it was who he was trusting. The overall theme of those first nine verses that we looked at last week was trust in Yahweh. Trust in God. He made a promise, and he will make it happen. I promised to show you the land that I'm going to take you to, and he did. And he promised to give them that land, and he promised to make them into a great nation. And, And so the whole theme there of those first nine verses was trust God no matter how bad it gets, no matter how impossible it may seem. But now who is Abraham trusting? 
not God, not Yahweh, but himself, man, and Egypt. And we can say this is, this is true about Abraham no matter what his motive was, because it's, it's difficult to determine what Abraham's motive was in this passage, both in going down to Egypt and in lying to the Egyptians. It's difficult to discern what was his motive here. Is, was, was it just self-preservation? He's just looking out for his own life? Was it to save his wife and his, and his family, whatever family did go with him? Or maybe it was a pure and good motive. Maybe it was to serve God. After all, God had just promised to make Abraham into a great nation. And so perhaps Abraham is just trying to help God out here. Maybe God's got himself into a pinch. Maybe he thought God was caught surprise by surprise by the, the famine. As if this Yahweh who was now talking to him wasn't omniscient and didn't know that the famine was coming. And if Abraham stayed in Canaan and, he, and, and if he starved to death, well then Abraham would die. And the promise that he made to Abraham would die as well. And that would make this Yahweh out to be a lie and it would make him out to be a laughing stock. And so, da 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 da, Abraham to the rescue, right? I've got a great idea. God, I will help you out. I think there's food down in Egypt, and so I'll go down there. I'll take Sarah down there. We'll go down there, and I will bail you out, God. I will, I will get some food. I'll stay alive, and I'll keep this promise alive. But even if his motive was pure in that sense, his means of doing so was simply a demonstration of a lack of trust in God. And instead, trusting himself and trusting in man. Again, think, think what the Israelites who are hearing this story from Moses, who are reading this historical account in the original pages that it was written on. Think about how they would have responded to this story about Abraham and his actions in going down to Egypt. To answer that, to consider that, we have to remember what God did for his people after he led them through the Red Sea and they escaped out of slavery in Egypt and they arrived into the Sinai wilderness on the other side. Shortly after that miraculous deliverance, the people started getting hungry and there wasn't any food around. No food in the wilderness. And they began to murmur and complain to Moses. Oh, Moses, it would have been better if you had left us in, in Egypt to die instead of taking us out into the desert to starve to death. Which is funny because you end up dead both ways, right? But they're murmuring and they're complaining because they don't have anything to eat. And what does God graciously do? In the midst of of a seemingly insurmountable hardship in the midst of an impossible situation, what does God do? Manna from heaven, right? He sends down literally food from heaven. He sends down bread out of the skies. And so if, they, if, if these people could have spoken into Abraham's life at this point in the story, what do you think they would have told him? What is the counsel do you think they would have given to Abraham? They would have said, oh, Abraham, don't give up. Keep trusting in God. Famines don't phase him. He's not taken by surprise by this. Listen to what happened to us. We were starving in the desert, and he sent food out of heaven. 
Don't quit, Abraham. Don't bail on God now. He gave us exactly what we needed, exactly when we needed it. And it came day after day. So don't bail on him now. Wait there in Canaan, Abraham. See what God will do to fulfill his promises. Just wait and trust. But of course, we know that Abraham doesn't. He goes down to Egypt. So we've got here Abraham's first test of faith, and he fails miserably, doesn't he? It's really remarkable, if you think about it, to compare the Abraham in verses 1 through 9 with the Abraham that we're confronted with in this morning's passage. They're almost like two different people. In verses 1 through 9, Abraham hears from this God that he's never heard from before. And this God says, leave everything, pack up, and head out into the wilderness, and I'm going to show you your destination eventually. And so he does. Packs up all that he knows. He leaves all that he loves. Besides his wife and his nephew, and he heads out. Starts heading out for Canaan. And then, and then God gives him a further promise. He, sa- he says, I'm, I'm going to make this Abraham, this Abraham who is, by the way, 75 years old and is married to a woman who can't have children. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. You're going to have a ton of descendants. And furthermore, through you, your descendants will be a blessing to the nations, all the peoples of the earth. And Abraham chooses to trust this God. And when he gets to Canaan and he receives the promise that this is the land, he builds altars and he worships this God, signifying that he does in fact trust him. He's going to keep trusting him. He's going to keep following him wherever he leads him. So Abraham's faith in those first nine verses, his faith in Yahweh is is on full display. But now we get to verses 10 through 12. And we got hardship. We got famine now. And because of famine, he stops trusting in God. He starts trusting in man. He takes matters into his own hand. Then it just gets worse from here. Because right as they're about to enter into Egypt, he pulls his wife Sarah aside. And he devises this plan of deception to make the people of Egypt think that his wife is really a sister. And so he lies about Sarah to the Egyptians. Look at verses 11 and 12. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarah, his wife, I know that you're a woman, beautiful in appearance. Great thing to say to your wife. Okay, next part, not so much. When the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Yeah, right, it's for my sake, sure. What, what made Abraham think that the Egyptians would take his wife? Were the Egyptians known for doing this? Or was this just maybe an, an early example of cultural misappropriation? Oh, you know those Egyptians, they'll take people's wives. What made him think that? And furthermore, What made him think that referring to Sarah as his sister instead of as his wife would make things better? There have been a myriad of explanations for why 
Abraham might have thought this, but at the end of the day, we don't know. We don't know why he thought this. We just, we just know that he wasn't listening to God. He was listening to himself and his own plans at this point. The bottom line is that he was wrong on both accounts. Apparently, the Egyptians weren't into that. Because when Pharaoh does find out that she is his wife and not his sister, he immediately returns her to Abraham. Ironically, very ironically, it is not an Egyptian Pharaoh, an Egyptian monarch, but an Israelite monarch, years later, centuries later, who would kill the husband of the woman that he was lusting after, which is what King David did to Bathsheba's husband, Uriah the Hittite. But not the Egyptian monarch, not the Egyptian pharaoh. Apparently, at least in this case, he had higher scruples than even the greatest king of Israel would centuries later. And it doesn't go better when Abraham refers to her as his sister rather than his wife, because they take her anyways. So again, taking matters into our, in, into our own hands doesn't always work out so well. Look, look at what happened in verses 14 through 16. When Abraham entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, just as they thought it would. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. Which just begs the question, is that what Abraham was after all along? Is that why he went down to Egypt? Is that why he lied to the Egyptians? Was it just greed so that he'd get all this Egyptian bling? We don't know. Read on, verses 17 through 20. The Lord intervenes here. The Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. There's really no question in this narrative that Abraham knew that what he was doing was wrong. He knew that it was a sin. In, in, in fact, ironically here, it is the pagan Pharaoh that rebukes Abraham for his moral failure here. Imagine that. Abraham knew this was sin. And by the way, it wasn't, it wasn't sin because he got caught. Any more than David's failure with Bathsheba was sinful just because he got caught by the prophet Nathan. It was a sin because it was wrong. For Abraham, if nothing else, it was a lie. He was intentionally lying to the Egyptians about Sarai being his sister. It wasn't wrong just because of the consequences. The consequences were serious and his wife was taken and he ended up being exiled out of Egypt. It was wrong because it was a sin of lying and because it was the sin of unbelief. Because underneath all of Abraham's actions in this passage is the sin of unbelief. Abraham stopped believing in God and his plans and his ways. He he stopped 
trusting in God. Why? Because of a famine and because of perceived violence that might be done to him at the hands of the Egyptians. And so in response to these crises, Abraham chooses not to trust in the Lord and his ways, and instead he chooses to trust in himself and his own plans and his own ways rather than in God. So how do we apply a passage? What's our application of a passage like this? I would submit to you that that our application lies on two planes. First on a, I would call a moralistic plane. There's a moral application here, but then there's also a redemptive plane that we need to look at. We can apply this principle, these truths to our own lives in a moralistic way, and that's not a bad thing. It's just, it's just an incomplete application. We can say, well, clearly, God just wants us to trust him no matter how hard it gets. And furthermore, he wants us to be honest. He wants us not to lie. He wants us to be truthful no matter the consequences. And both of those are true and right and good ethical truisms. That that we should trust God no matter how hard it gets, no matter how impossible the situation might be. And we ought to be honest and, and, and not lie and not be deceptive and not deceive no matter what the consequences might be for doing so. And we see both of these lessons reiterated over and over again in Scripture. And, and, and each of us could point to lots of Old Testament stories that seem to reiterate that same moral lesson to us. And, and both Jesus and many of the New Testament writers also reinstitute or reinforce those lessons as well. So consider them. Consider those lessons in your own life, in my life. What is it in your life, perhaps right now, that God is leading you through that seems impossible? Maybe it's a life-altering illness, a disease that has just thrown your life into a tailspin. Maybe it's adult children who've walked away from the faith and you don't know what to do. Maybe You've left your country and you've moved to a foreign country to serve the Lord Jesus and you don't know how you're going to make ends meet because nothing's the same. Maybe you've just left your job or just got fired from a job, just got let go of a job and you don't have any means of income. It seems impossible. Whatever it is, the lesson from Abraham's life here and on, on a moralistic plane, the lesson from Abraham's life here is don't bail on, on God just because it's gotten hard to trust him. Don't, don't, don't bail on the Lord just because it seems impossible. The circumstance, the situation, whatever it is, this is where your faith is being tested. It's being refined, so don't, man, don't, don't short-circuit that process. This is where your faith is being purified. Gold is, is purified, it's refined in the furnace when it's subjected to heat. And as that gold melts, the dross, the, the impurities in the gold are melted away and float to the surface and are skimmed off so that what results is pure gold. It's worth it 
for God's sake, for you and I to stay in the refiner's fire, no matter how high the heat gets turned up, so that the dross of our faith, the impurities of our faith, melted away, so that what results is pure, unadulterated faith in Yahweh, in the God of the Bible. The Apostle Peter put it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance, so now he's he's pointing about what's yet to come in this salvation. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. Who are you? You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Then he says this, in this you rejoice. In what? In this salvation that is pure, that that is both now and yet to come. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, hardships, suffering. And why do we have those hardships? Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's some really good stuff there. Why does God sometimes lead us into situations and circumstances in life that seem impossible, that appear to be insurmountable, and tell us to trust him, and yet doesn't show us the way? He just says, trust me, follow me, I'll show you. Why does he do this? Sometimes, according to the Apostle Peter here, what God is after in doing that is the stuff that Peter calls here the tested genuineness of faith. Peter says that stuff's more precious than gold because even the gold that's refined by fire, that that is pure gold, even that, will one day perish. But this stuff, the tested genuineness of faith of God's people, what good is it? Peter tells us it is supremely valuable to God because he says that it will result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So no matter how impossible the situation seems, no matter how hard it gets, this situation that God has led you in, Keep trusting God. Don't bail on him now. He's refining your faith. It doesn't matter if there's a Red Sea in front of you and Pharaoh's army behind you. If he has led you out of Egypt and he's leading you into the promised land, he's going to make a way. Just trust him. No matter how high the walls of Jericho might be, if he's told you to march around it, just keep marching. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other and keep trusting God. No matter if he tells you to feed lunch to 5,000 people and you've only got five loaves and two fish, keep trusting. Just, Just start handing out food and keep trusting God. 
That's the first aspect of an application of a passage of scripture like this on a moralistic plane. Keep trusting God, no matter how impossible the situation you're in might seem. And then secondly, be honest, even when the consequences for doing so are dire. So think about it. What might you be tempted or where might you be tempted in your life to so take matters into your own hands that you might be tempted to lie and cheat and connive in order to save your own hide? If you get stopped by a policeman for speeding and he comes to your window and he says, do you know how fast you're going? He's like, oh, no, I, I don't. My speedometer's broken. I really don't, I really don't know when you do. No. Or maybe you're a student and you don't get your homework done completely, not because it was hard, but because you stayed up all night texting with your friends. And you're, but you don't tell your teacher that, do you? You don't tell your teacher that. You tell your teacher what? My, my dog ate it or, right? This part of it I didn't really understand, so I, I wanted to come and ask you. Maybe you're doing your taxes and you end up owing a lot more than you anticipated owing. Do you just write that check out to the Internal Revenue Service? Or do you go back through the return and look for ways to adjust those numbers? You know, maybe your Savior is being subjected to an unfair trial in the palace of the chief priests. Maybe your Savior is being beaten by the guards and you're out in the courtyard and a little girl comes up to you and says, I know you, you're one of, you're one of his followers. But you don't say, yes, I am. I am a follower of Jesus of Nazareth. Instead, you deny him three times. Lying and being dishonest as a means of escaping suffering or penalty, or punishment, or ridicule, or even execution, is always, always a manifestation of a lack of trust in God. Think about it. Could God have worked things out for Abraham, even after he went down in Egypt, without him being killed for having a beautiful wife? course he could in fact he did because when pharaoh found out that he was she was his wife he immediately gave her back to him but just as with the famine up in canaan abraham thought that this predicament down in egypt was too big of a problem for god and so again he was trusting himself not god he was taking matters into his own hands instead of instead of trusting god in the situation He chose to lie to get out of the situation. So there's two applications on a moral plane, a moralistic plane. Trust God no matter how impossible the situation seems and be honest no matter how dire the consequences for doing so. But there's there's this other plane over and above the moralistic plane that we need to consider and that is the redemptive plane of application. And by the way, when we when we turn the corner from this moralistic plane to a redemptive plane, we're turning our focus away from what Abraham was or wasn't doing, and we're turning our focus to what God was doing. 
So what, what is God doing here? He's leading Abraham through a trial in the form of a famine in Canaan in order to what? To test his faith. Because the greatest test of Abraham's faith is yet to come. Would God, in fact, give him a son? Even though he's 75, even though his wife is barren, would he really do that? Would God trust him for that? We'll find out. But that, that was the greatest test. And, and God, God is using Abraham's faltering faith here. He's, he's using his weak trust in God, even his own sin of lying. He didn't, he didn't cause him to lie in Egypt, but he's using his, his sin of lying. He's using those things to teach Abraham to trust him. Because the greatest test of his faith is yet to come. Is, is God really going to do that? Is he really going to keep the, 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 the seed of promise alive through which he would send his son and through which all the nations, all the peoples, all the tribes of the earth would be blessed? Is God really going to do that? Even though it seems insurmountable, even though that seems impossible, God's using this situation to grow his faith in Yahweh so that Abraham would in fact trust God for redemption. Not just for escape from a famine, not just from escape from Egypt, but redemption of his people and fulfillment of his promises to redeem mankind. What about the Israelites out on the Sinai wilderness as they're reading this historical account from Abraham? What do they think about this? Well, God had made them a promise of redemption as well, to give them land, the land on the other side of the Jordan, a promise to watch over them and be their God, that they would be his people, and that he would bring them back to the promised land. And this historical account of Abraham's faltering faith would have been a great encouragement to them who, by the way, had a faltering faith as well. Remember the golden calf? Man, right after they got the Ten Commandments, they, 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 they had not been in the Sinai long when Moses was called up to the mountain and, and God was given them the Ten Commandments and, and they grew restless and they grew impatient. And where is this God who led us out of Egypt? Where is he now? And so they took their jewelry and they, they melted it down to gold and they fashioned it to, to a calf and they trusted it, not Yahweh. Their faith faltered. And remember also the story of them later listening to the spies who went into the promised land and they saw only the giants that were there, but they didn't listen to Joshua and Caleb who came back and said, yeah, there's giants, but our Yahweh is much, much bigger than they are. They listened to them. They listened to the ones who saw only the giants. Their faith faltered. Go read the book of Exodus. That'd probably be a good thing to do to for all of us to get a, a, a real good understanding of who, who these people are that, that Moses wrote this book to originally. To see all the ways that the faith of the Israelites faltered over and over again in that story. So th those are the Israelites who are listening to this story from a, about Abraham from Moses. They're listening to the story, and, and they would have seen themselves in Abraham here. 
They would have seen themselves and would have been encouraged in two ways. First, they would have been encouraged to trust God no matter how impossible the situation got. To trust God for the rescue and redemption that they desperately needed and that Yahweh had providentially promised to them. They would be encouraged to trust in God no matter how impossible the situation got. Church, our greatest need, our truly impossible situation is how how will we, a sinful and rebellious people, escape what we deserve from a holy God because of our sin and rebellion against him? How will we escape that? What hope do we have to escape that? that? That is our truly impossible situation. Now, we can take matters into our own hands and say, well, I'm just going to work for it. I'm going to try to earn it, which is a dead-end path. We learned that in Romans. No man will be justified in God's sight by his works. Rescue from sin and judgment comes only by God making provision for our sin and judgment by sending his one and only son to live the perfect life that we could never live and to die in our place on a cross. And the only saving response to that good news, that God promises redemption through his son, Jesus Christ. The only saving response to that is to trust God, to trust him by placing our faith in his son, Jesus Christ, as our only hope. Some of you are here this morning and you need to do just that. Maybe you've been trying to earn God's favor by being faithful in church attendance or trying to be a good person or trying to root out sin in your own life and you've been working really hard at it and maybe you've been successful for a season. But the overwhelming testimony of Scripture is that we can never do enough good to outweigh our sin. And we're hopeless in that condition. And I would hope and pray that God would make that clear to you this morning, both through the songs that we sang, the the testimony of communion, as well as the story from Abraham's life. That there is no good that you can do that will outweigh your sin. That stain of sin is permanent. It can only be removed by God. And he won't remove it because of our works. He'll only remove it based on the blood of Jesus Christ, by faith in Christ. And so if you've never professed faith in Jesus Christ, I I hope and pray that you will this morning. It's not about walking an aisle, checking a box on a card, saying certain words. It's simply about trusting in Jesus Christ as your only hope to be rescued. I hope and pray you do. I hope and pray that you do. But if you have, if you're here this morning and God has saved you by grace through faith, if you've walked with him for any length of time, you know along with me that sometimes our faith still falters. Will God really bring us home one day? Will Jesus' blood really cover over all of my sin? All of it? Will his righteousness really be counted as my own by grace, through faith? Will he really make all things new? Will, 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 Will the serpent's head really finally and completely be crushed and done away with? Or, like in the movies, will evil make a a last-minute comeback? 
And, and, and will it defeat me or, or separate me from the love of Christ? What does God tell us in the moment of those questions and that faltering faith? What does God tell us from this story of Abraham? He says, keep trusting in me. I am the God that you trusted in to be saved from the penalty of your sin. Keep trusting me today and tomorrow and the next day. And trust that I am going to come and bring you home. Trust that there is an eternal home with me. Trust that I am going to make all things new. I haven't changed. Don't bail on me now. Keep trusting in me, no matter how impossible the situation seems. But the second way the story would have encouraged the Israelites is that they would have been incredibly encouraged by the display of God's grace in this story. This passage reminds us that Abraham was just like us. He was a man of flesh. He was imperfect. He was weak, just like us. We see him falter in his trust of Yahweh and head down to Egypt, taking matters into his own hands, trusting himself, not trusting in God. We see him lying, deceiving to the Egyptians, into thinking that Sarah is not his wife, she's his sister. Abraham's messed up in this passage. And as a result of that, in response to that, we might expect him to receive judgment and punishment as a result of that. But how does he leave Egypt? with a full belly and a fat wallet. Look at all that he leaves Egypt with. Sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, camels. And in the opening verses of chapter 13, we'll see next week, it says, Abraham was very rich. He was blessed. That is simply God's grace. Did Abraham deserve these kindnesses from God? Of course not. They were undeserved blessings from God, which is what grace is. When God gives us the good that we don't deserve. In fact, ironically, it's the pagan Pharaoh that receives no mercy from God. Pharaoh and his family receive no mercy. It says, Moses tells us, God afflicted Moses and his family, his house, with great plagues. So the pagan unbeliever is afflicted, and God's chosen, Abraham, receives grace. And church, the same is true today. God does the same thing today. The unbeliever who doesn't profess faith in Christ will receive no mercy from God. But by God's grace, those whom God has chosen to save are grateful recipients of sovereign grace. Undeserved favor from a holy God. So let us thank him for that amazing grace. Would you pray with me?